Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. It is Wednesday afternoon, way earlier than I would normally record these, but I have a very crazy schedule the next couple of days, and I saw there were already a bunch of questions, so I figured I would just do it early. But as always, if I missed your question, please just post wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post, because the way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. And besides, I always like just scrolling through in real time like you always see me do. So sorry if I came in so early that I missed your question this week, but DM me if you need anything and just re-ask again for next week if you want to discuss then. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Floatplane, Buster D was chiming in on the SimulView feature, which is what the PlayStation 3D TV would allow if you wanted to use two players playing the same game, but each only seeing their own part of the game. I talked about that last week and on uh, the Roundup as well. And Buster said, if they recall, the SimulView feature needed an EDID doctor or something to work on displays other than the PS 3D TV. So it seems like something that you probably could get working on like a standard plasma, but you would need to spoof the EDID of the PlayStation TV, which isn't so hard. Uh, The devices for that aren't so expensive. Um, But, you know, it seems like a neat feature, but Buster also said they imagine there's some ghosting involved. Yeah, I imagine there would also be a ton of crosstalk with stuff like that. And I wonder how that would also affect frame rates of games. And I think there's kind of a lot that goes into that. So neat feature, but certainly not something I would buy or not something I would chase after as the main feature of a display like that. For me personally, just playing games in 3D was awesome, but good point, And thanks for letting people know. Now over on Patreon, looks like some more talk about the 3D TV stuff, which is awesome because I'm always glad to hear people hyped about that. But Stephen Wells said they've seen those shared screen glasses in use, and it was possible to make some from regular active 3D glasses by inverting the polarity of one of the lenses on each pair. It does not work for passive glasses. Well, not polarity, but rewire so both lenses cycle at the same time as opposed to alternating. You just need to make sure that one pair is off while the other pair is on. That's pretty cool. So that, that's got to be another thing that has to do with it is the glasses specifically for that TV. So coincidentally enough, I didn't do this on purpose. I really do just read these questions in real time. But Buster's comment before about requiring an EDID spoofing, it sounds like if you wanted to use the SimulView feature on a regular 3D TV or projector, not only would you need to spoof the EDID so the PS3 could utilize it, but you would also need to hack the glasses in order to shutter at the correct times. So for me personally, I don't think I'd bother or I would hunt down a PlayStation 3D TV, but I appreciate everybody chiming in about this one. Darkstar7 also wanted to chime in a little bit about the PlayStation 3D TV, so the PS3. 3D TV, whatever it was called, and that you can use it with NVIDIA 3D stuff, but you need special driver support and to have it re-enabled. So while it's not nearly as complicated as hacking your glasses and doing an EDID spoof, uh, it's still something that you would have to put a little work into. So if you wanted to use the PlayStation 3D TV as a 3D display for your PC, it's not as easy as just plugging it in. And then of course, anytime you use any high bandwidth stuff like 3D or 4K, you're going to want to make sure to use a correct cable and all of that stuff. So really, it's just about what you want to do. Um, You know, if you want to use it as uh, if you want to use a 3D display as your monitor, I would suggest any 3D compatible LCD display. But if you're just gaming, I would definitely look into 3D plasma TVs, as you could probably find those somewhat inexpensive these days. And I certainly enjoyed the experience. And once again, the only reason I wouldn't suggest it for PC use is just image retention uh, and possible burn in versus how much better that is with LCD stuff. James the Naked Snake was following up with our discussion on switches and their total setup, and I think I have all the info I need to give a decent recommendation as well as why. Uh, In respect for people's time, I'm not going to read through your full setup, but the basic overview is that James has a whole bunch of PAL consoles. Some eventually will be modded to run NTSC and PAL, but they're all PAL at the moment. And there's a handful of RGB SCART and a handful of component video cables. The output is currently to an OSSC, which might eventually be replaced with a RetroTank 5X. And the second output would be to eventually getting a consumer-grade TV with a component and RGB SCART input, preferably one with both, but may end up with one or the other. So in your setup, my recommendation is if money isn't an issue to get both of the G switches, the G comp switch and the G SCART switch, they'll handle absolutely everything that you need for 
your entire setup, and you would just have to connect each to either the OSSC and RetroTank, and then just select your inputs depending on, just on the RetroTank, select your input uh, depending on what device. You could set your OSSC to auto-detect. Uh, I still have mine manual because I, I like to you know, manually dial in which console I want and why, but, um, so it's going to, it would be a mostly automated setup. Now yours is one of the cases that I would not recommend an Extron Crosspoint because while the G switches are not cheap, your total solution is what you have to worry about. So with the two G switches, you just plug the everything in that you just described and all you need to do is buy some output cables or like the SCART coupler for your OSSC and stuff like that. Um, whereas if you go for an Extron Crosspoint, that SNES and N64 is most likely sync on composite maybe Luma, but probably sync on composite, which means you're going to have to have sync strippers built in. You're going to have a ton of custom cables. You mentioned NES was RGB SCART modded, so you'd have to figure out how that was done. Same thing with original PlayStation. So in, in this scenario, it's just probably as a total cost of all the cables and adapters and everything else, cheaper to go with the G switches. And it is really all automated. The only issue you would ever run into is if you found a CRT that was only component video or only RGB SCART. And in that case, you could just run one of the outputs into the other with a transcoder, which wouldn't add that much cost. If you have, you know, as long as you take into context the total setup, spending another hundred bucks to make sure component turns into RGB or vice versa to have it all run through your TV, I think that would be pretty worth it. So that's what I'm gonna recommend to you because this is the scenario in which it's proof that these switches that are designed for retro gaming are worth it because all of the problems I could list with you using other devices do not exist. The only other thing you could try is a bunch of uh, manuals like push button switches like the otaku switch and stuff like that. You could get a couple of those for much cheaper. I believe the otakus are either out of stock or are not really shipping though, but if you could find manual push button switches that don't ruin the image, I think retro gaming cables is teasing one that could save you some money. But at the end of the day, you're probably going to eventually want to move to the G scarts anyway, just because it has, or the G scart and the G comp, because it could do everything that you need. So excellent, uh, you know, excellent setup. Everything's awesome. And if you wanted to go to the cross point, I could walk you through that. But I just think this is one of those things where if it were me personally, I would start saving for those switches and just manually connect one at a time until then and kind of skip all the other stuff because that way you would never have to worry about any of the things that you talked about. Dave Phipps wants to know, what exactly does pixel perfect mean? Which is a great question, but it could be applied to a few different things. And it could also be interpreted different ways. So the most common way that I've used that before is talking about comparing a new solution versus original consoles. So you take an original console and you do a video analysis of it, and then you take a new solution like the Mister, the analog consoles, really good software emulation, and you analyze the signals of both. If it comes out almost exactly the same, so the same aspect ratio, the same colors, you could get something that is super close to the original. But for me to use that term, it wouldn't just apply to the look. I would only use that to describe something where the total experience is equal to the original, including lag and all that other stuff. Now, you could also use that as a term to describe something like in original NES outputs composite and RF. But if you install an HDMI mod to it, you could output those same exact signals, but without any analog interference. So you could call that a pixel perfect solution. Um, you could also use it to describe uh, how things are scaled. So is it exactly the same size and shape as the original or is it scaled larger? So it's really a blanket term in retro gaming. And while there might very well be a dictionary definition, which obviously I didn't look up, oops, um, there might be a, def a definition of that. But I'm pretty sure that you're asking the question in the context of what does that mean when we hear it in the retro gaming world? So I think that that's more, in that case, just a blanket term of a copy of an original being as equal to or better than the original. Because one would argue that, you know, Mr. Outputting perfect digital signals of uh, an Atari 2600 might be better than the signal, the noisy RF signal from the original. 
But that's kind of up to you. And that's why the definition of this in the context that we're talking about gets really complicated. But as always, I would love to hear anybody else's opinions on this. Do you think I got it wrong? Do you think that I missed something? Do you have a better way of explaining it that I could then steal and use in the future to teach people better? So uh, please, I'm all ears for this one. But for me personally, that's what that term means at least off the top of my head as I'm answering. So often I'll finish these, I'll upload them, I'll be driving in my car, and randomly it'll pop in my head like, damn, I got Dave's question wrong. I should have also mentioned this and talked about that too. So who knows? Hopefully I got that one right. Uh, but I think I'm close even if I didn't. Bowie's got a PlayStation 3 that is not backwards compatible. It's the CEC HH01. However, you can get those PS2 Classics downloads, which has software emulation from the factory. And they prefer the, to play those games at 480p resolution, which means they need to go in the game settings and turn the upscaler off. However, when they do, the PS2 or the PS3 shuts down, beeps three times, and the red light starts to blink. Then they, then they have to press the power button once to shut it down, once again to power it back on, and then go back in and do the whole thing again. They could run PS1 Classics games just fine at 480p or 480i. And the only way for them to run PS2 Classics at 480p is first set the default upscaler value to normal, um, and then press the PS button to manually disable the upscaling once the game already runs. That's a problem because this means they can't even launch those games on a 480p CRT or EDTV, and the problem affects both HDMI and component video outputs at 480i and 480p. So that's really weird. I've never heard of that before. Has anybody run into an issue where they're on a non-backward compatible PS3, then when they try to launch a PS2 downloaded game, they can't force 480p modes? That seems really strange. That seems like there's either a problem with that specific model PS3, there's a could be a problem with Bowie's just specific PS3 that they own, or it could just be something that I've never run into before. But that's a very strange one, and I'm gonna need to default to the chat for this. Anybody have any question or any thoughts on it? Has this happened before? Um, I have a PS3 Slim that I use for PS3 games and for occasionally if I need just a, a Blu-ray player or a DVD player. And then I have a CECH A01, and that's what I use if I ever need to do backward compatibility. So I don't really run into that issue. So anybody have any thoughts on this one? I apologize, Bowie. I got nothing for you. Scanline City wants to know what's the best setup to test and measure input lag. That is a great question, but there is no one answer for that. So if you have a PC setup, the GILT, I believe it's called, is a lag testing device that's USB-based. You plug it into the PC, you run the software, and then you hold it up to your monitor, and it gets the total latency of your full setup. USB ports, the computer itself, the video card, the monitor. So that's a great way to do it, but obviously you wouldn't be able to use that with you know, clone consoles and stuff. So then you might want to use something like an a controller with an LED on it and a game. Now, in the perfect world, what you would end up doing is building a custom test setup where you have a piece of software on a test cartridge that has some kind of ports in it that you could plug a controller and maybe an oscilloscope into or something. So you could tell from the time that you press the button on the controller to when the console is reading that. And that would be a way to test some kind of wireless controllers or controller adapters or things like that. Or you could even do something where you could write software that is programmed so that as soon as you press the button, it's, you know, it's pulling the, um, the controller ports as fast as the console allows. And as soon as you do anything like that, it changes the color on the screen, turns the screen off, whatever. But that would be pretty hard to do for every console. So what I like to do is use a controller with an LED attached to it. And I even had one at one point that was like a beat up old arcade board um, where you could kind of put the LED on whatever pins that you want or ar arcade stick, not arcade board. But you could do that with any like generic cheap, you know, $10 controller off of Amazon. You know, those ones I'm talking about where the D-pad never works right. There's no latency because it all just uses the same uh, shift registers as the original. But, you know, it's not a great controller. Hack one of those up, have an LED attached to it. And uh, there's an LED circuit that you're going to want to add. You don't just touch the LED to it. But set all that up so that you could put it on whatever button you want. 
then load up something like the 240p test suite that has an all white screen. Or even if you don't have the test suite for that console, you could just pick a game uh, where you use the same. I would always try to go with full screen because it's easier to capture, but you could always do things like every time you press up to jump or, you know, press A to swing a hammer or whatever it is in the game. And then you would want to take slow motion footage of that. Now, I have that 1,000 frame per second camera that I find is very, uh, very accurate with stuff like this. Terrible quality, though. It does not look great in the videos, and it's very time-consuming. But I, what I would basically do is take a video of pressing the button 10 times on one solution and then 10 times on another. So you could do that on clone consoles, software emulation, whatever you got, and then find a median. Now, most of these consoles pull their controller ports once a frame, twice a frame, something like that. So there's always going to be a variance in your measurements, even on original consoles, because of when the button press hits versus when the console is scanning the port. So there's always potential for for lag with original consoles, but because that's the way the games were designed, I would never refer to that as lag. I would refer to that as like the base median or something like that. Um, there's a few other things you could do. So uh, there's a kit for the mister that you could use to, in order to test the mister itself from when you press the button to when the mister reads it. And that's pretty awesome as well. I have one here and I still don't know how to use it. I got to do a live stream with somebody uh, on the mister team at some point to figure this out. I think that's super helpful though. So if you're a mister user and you just want to test things like controller latency, adapter latency, wireless latency, stuff like that, the mister one would probably be the best because it's, well, I, I can't imagine it's easy to use. It's got to be way less time consuming than the other stuff. But if you don't just want to measure controllers, if you want to measure total solutions or anything else, I think the average person using like a slow motion camera on their, whatever's built into their cell phone, which should be fine. Uh, but using something like that and an LED circuit, that would probably be a very close way to get to that measurement. Uh, but you would probably have to do it. And if you did it on CRTs, you would probably even be able to at least get it down to the frame. And I guess reference the Genesis mini video I did where I showed that. Uh, and I think I showed a couple others as well where you use the controller to measure it. But I guess... To answer your question directly, the short answer, what's the best setup to test and measure input lag? If you're talking about controllers and controller adapters, I think the Mr. One would be best. Um, but hopefully we can get another set of hardware tools up at some point to kind of dig in and, and try to create things for people to test so that people have an easier setup for stuff like this. But the Guilt is definitely an awesome tool uh, and, you know, the, the Mr. Stuff. So those are the two favorite choices at the moment. LED's third only because of how unbelievably time-consuming it is. Green Devil was looking for some guidance for network-attached storage. They currently use a Windows-based Plex server, but they were looking into RetroNAS, they had seen the interview with Space Invader 1 about Unraid, and they were looking into the software DrivePool. So I read through your whole question, I read every word of this, and I think a great solution for you is Unraid, but I want to go over the bad and the good of that. It's not really a bad, it's just one hiccup getting started. So if you use the software drive pool on Windows, which I've never used, but I believe it's just software that allows you to add multiple drives into your PC and it shows up all as one drive and possibly with some parity in there if you wanted. So basically just like on RAID, but on Windows. That should be pretty easy. If you wanted to do that, all that should require is just plugging more drives in and that's it. Whereas on Unraid, you have to erase a drive before adding it to the pool. And that may or may not be an issue for you because you mentioned picking up another drive, another eight terabyte drive because your largest is eight terabytes and using that as parity. If that was your plan, that really isn't that big a deal at all. All you would do is build your Unraid server, which you already have the server built. So that essentially means just load Unraid on a USB stick. And then you would add the brand new eight terabyte drive as your main drive in the pool. Add your current one as mounted separately. You would use unassigned devices and unassigned devices plus. You add those plugins and then you would use the software Crusader as like a web browser in there or a file browser. And then you would copy all of the data from your current drive to the new one. Verify that it copied, make sure it's all there, and then erase your drive and add it to the array as parity. 
So that really isn't that big of a deal. You know, you have one day of like, you know, you have like 15 minutes of setup and then you got like a day of waiting for everything to copy and then you're done. The only issue at all would be as if you immediately wanted to start with larger drives uh, because the parity drive always has to be equal to or bigger than all of the rest. So if you were like, hey, I'm going to be ripping all of my Ultra HD Blu-rays, I'm going to be ripping all of my games, and I want to get an 18 terabyte hard drive, you would need to get an 18, use that as the parity, and then get another to go along with it. There's other ways you could probably get around it, but that would be the easier way to do it. Doesn't sound like that's what you want, though. So from that perspective, it's really not that bad. But here's all the good. First of all, Unraid runs off of a USB stick. So all you have to do to try this out, I would suggest powering down your server, unplugging all of the drives that are in there so you don't mess anything up, grab any drive you have laying around. You mentioned you have a few spares and load up your Unraid USB stick and load your spare drive as the main pool drive and just play around with it for an hour or so and see what you think. The worst possible thing that could happen is you erase the USB stick in the drive, plug everything else back the way it was, and there you go. You lose a little time, you learn something, totally worth trying out that way. But if you decide to stick with it, there's a whole bunch of stuff you could do. First and foremost, there's already a Plex plugin that works excellent and runs in the background. So right off the bat, you could export your current setup, import it into this one. And I think if you, as long as your drive share is the same label, then that's it. I think you're, you're pretty good to go. You don't have to rescan your media or anything like that. Also, while there isn't an official Unraid RetroNAS plugin yet, if you wanted to, just load up a Debian virtual machine and run it right from there. It should work just the same with no issues whatsoever. And when there is eventually an official plugin for it, your data stays the same. All you would have to do is delete the VM and then put the new plugin in and point it to that. And that's it. Just change your setup options. So 15 minutes worth of work, if you even care. There would be no performance difference from running... Uh, Unraid, or I'm sorry, from running um, RetroNAS in a Debian virtual machine on Unraid, there's no performance difference from there to having it as a plugin. I just, the plugin might be a fancier menu or something, who knows. But you could also have access to virtual machines for Windows. So if you're somebody who just hates the command line, hates uh, the Crusader window, unless you have to use it, you just want to use Windows, you could pass through a US, just so buy like a $20 USB 3.0 card, plug that into your computer, pass that through to the virtual machines. Space Invader One has videos on all of this, by the way, which is why I'm, I'm skimming such a technical topic. But then you could enter it, ah, you could interface with USB devices and your Unraid array in a Windows environment through a virtual machine. So if you have a whole bunch of drives you want to start copying over and, you know, editing folders, and you can do it all this way on the same machine. Or I guess, I mean, you could just do it from a laptop and, and do it over the network. But I think a lot of people like the fact that you could just have your server running 24-7. So if you wanted to copy a drive over to it, you could just let that go. And you don't also have to have your PC and your laptop taken up for that time. So there's just a whole bunch of other options. And one of the other things that I'm working on, and uh, thanks to the people on the Unraid forums and Ed and a bunch of other my, my Linux nerd friends for helping, but it's going to take another month or two, but I'm working on documentation for how to take an Unraid server and make it double as a dedicated streaming PC as well. So it boots into Unraid and then you have all of your capture cards in there. You pass that hardware through and then whenever you want to stream, you fire yourself up a web window on anything, a Chromebook, whatever, as long as you can access a web window, you fire up that virtual machine and you could use that server to stream your games. And you could even, you know, if you have an extra USB card, just like I described, you could plug your USB headset into it. You could use it just like a regular computer, but it's also running as your server at the same time. So I love multi-use devices. I don't know why I've been obsessed with them my whole life. I just, the thought of having like, you know, a NAS with a Plex server on it and a dedicated streaming PC and a laptop drives me crazy. Like I want one thing that could do all of these things. So, and if you already have the hardware, why not take advantage of it? But look, this is totally up to you. Um, you know, you're switching platforms, you're switching out of, your, out of something that you're already comfortable with. It's going to cause a lot of work to set it up just like anything, anytime you change. So I would really just think about it, but 
I think Unraid is probably a great thing. And the the main advantage, I don't want to get into too much detail because I talked about this in the interview with Ed, but the main advantage of using Unraid versus a NAS box is that if two drives die or if your motherboard dies, all of that data is still accessible. So my, my array of drives for Unraid has been through like six different computers right now. And every time, the first time, I was terrified. Is my data going to be okay? I, you know, I read all of these, these things on forums. And I watched a couple of Ed's videos. And I'm like, how am I going to transfer the array over? What if I lose everything? And you know, I don't want to oversimplify because maybe other people listening might have had problems. But for my setup... Simply plugging those drives into another machine and booting into Unraid was all it took. That's it. Maybe I had to remap the CD-ROM drive for uh, for MakeMKV's plugin, but that was a big deal. So your computer could die, and all of the drives, as long as you just grab your USB stick, move it onto another computer, you're good. But also, if multiple drives die, all of those hard drives are readable in any Linux machine. Whereas if you had like a RAID 5 or a RAID 10 NAS box, two drives die... That's it, the data. I mean, you could have it forensically retrieved, but that's expensive and not something most people would do. So that's that's kind of my suggestion. Maybe DrivePool has the same options, but I don't know. I, I, I've spent almost a full year with Unraid now, and I, I'm really liking it. And the more I use it, the more I like it. So hopefully that you know kind of gives you and anybody listening a perspective as to why you would want it, how easily you could integrate RetroNAS and I'm a big fan. I'm going to be doing more stuff with that. Also, you wanted to update on the N64 power supply stuff. It looks like one of the larger capacitors inside was backwards. So that's why the fuse blew and that's why the power fo- or the problem followed the PSU. So no big deal. Swap out the fuse and the cap. And now at least you know the answer to the problem or the answer to why the problem happened. Josh Dilly wants to connect their VCR to their 4K TV via a RetroTINK, and while that's a great solution, there's a bunch of stuff that you're going to want to note. Because of course there is. It's retro. There's always a bunch of stuff that you need to know, and you can't just plug something in. In this, this case, you probably can, but you didn't specify which RetroTINK you were using, so I'm going to answer it for all of them. First, the 2X line of products. I would start by setting that to pass-through mode. And while I would normally not suggest this for games because of how badly most TVs add lag to interlaced signals, lag makes no difference when it comes to watching a tape on a VCR. So I would start out putting it in pass-through mode, seeing what happens. It should probably be perfectly meh. Remember, it's a noisy 480i signal being scaled to 4K, so there's no miracles here. But that would probably be a decent solution for everybody. And if you're not the type of person that wants to mess around, you could just be done right there. Just plug it in, set it to pass through, watch your movies, it's totally fine. If you don't mind tinkering, the original 2X products, so the original 2X and the 2X Mini, I guess, those have a smoothing filter that you could apply when it's uh, set to 480p mode. So there's a good and a bad. The bad is that with the originals, you only have Bob D interlacing, which is zero lag, but flickery. The image kind of shifts around. However, adding the smoothing filter both smooths the image and reduces the look of the flicker. So you could try that to see what you think. I don't think you're going to like it better than just passing it through and make it, letting your TV do the work, but it's there, it's free, why not? Now, if you have the 2X Pro, then you would be able to add scan lines in 480i mode, and depending on what you're watching, that could be a really cool experience. It could also be a headache-inducing, flickery mess. It's all up to you, your TV, the content that you're watching. Um, it's really just something that you're going to want to mess around with. Now, if you're using the 5X, that's a totally different story. You could simply just go in, set it to motion adaptive deinterlacing, set it to the resolution that you want, and you're done. However, I suggest going a step further and messing around with the settings. What's the best resolution that uh, for your TV? Um, you know, will it accept 1440p? Try the smoothing filter, especially depending on what content that you're watching. That that could be a big help as well. Um, try different combinations of resolutions because maybe if you set it to one and your TV scales it from there, it would look different. But once again, you don't have to. If you have a RetroTank 5X, plug it into the composite video port uh, and just 
set it to that input and that's it. It's defaults to motion adaptive. You've already set the output resolution so you don't have to worry. So I guess to go back to the beginning, if you're using any of the 2X products, set them to pass through, uh, unless it's the multi-format and then I'm not really sure how that's gonna work, but I don't think too many of those are out there. So original 2X, set it to pass through. The 5X, just plug it in and that's really all you need but each of the retro tanks have different things you could do to mess with it to see if it improves the signal. And it could very well be different, a different preference depending on the content. So you're watching old cartoons versus old home movies versus whatever else. You might like a completely different look for either. So you could just plug it in and walk away if you'd like, but I would spend a few moments messing with it because your combination of devices might look pretty cool depending on your settings and what you find. Jason Guffey has a couple of questions this week. I might break up the answers into different segments just to make it easier for me because I like to try to keep it flowing nice and sometimes I get to back up and correct myself. So wish me luck and see if I can get through it. First, what's the tool they see people use to melt heat shrink tubing that looks like some type of blowgun? Is that a hot air rework station? Does it melt solder at all too or weaken joints? Uh, yes to all of those things. So that's a hot air rework station. You could set the temperature and the speed that the air blows out. That is definitely what people use for heat shrink tubing, as well as things like heat up chips to pull them off of boards. That's a very dangerous process if you've never done it. So, you know, because you could rip all the traces up. So be very careful if you do that. Um, you could also use it to uh, some people have used it for SMD soldering and solder paste. Uh, I don't know. That's I've seen people do that, and I don't know if I'm good enough. I'd rather put that in a reflow oven instead. But yeah, it's a tool that could be very useful, but just like every other one of these tools, if used wrong, you could damage your board. And obviously, I don't mean you. I mean anybody who's using it. So hopefully that came across right. Next, I've been told when making do-it-yourself cables that the shielding should be grounded only on one side in order to avoid a ground loop in the cable, but I've never not connected ground wires on both sides of the cable. Is there something different about shielding, like maybe that the interference is coming from outside the cable? I don't know that that's true. There might be a very specific scenario. They might be talking about how if you have a cable where with multiple cores that are individually shielded and you have shielding on the outside, that could be a possibility as well. Um, but I think when it comes to, if you're talking about a single cable with a signal and a ground around it, that has to be connected on both ends. I think that might only be the shielding around all of that, but uh, I would really take that into the exact context of what it is that you're making and do research on that. I don't think... I could be wrong, but I don't think that's one of those things where it's just a general rule about it. Um, next, what can you tell me about those big donut cylinders they see around some cables, especially VGA ones? Those are ferrite cores. Um, those help filter some interference and they aren't always necessary. I am I know enough about them to understand in my head what they do, but I'm not, I don't know enough that I could explain it in a way that I would be comfortable doing it. So I would kind of look up the use of ferrites and I, I've seen them make a difference, but the biggest difference I have ever seen them make is when we were doing testing for products. So we put our computer into an EMI chamber and we were making sure they were medically certified so they can go into hospitals. And that is where I saw the biggest difference with ferrite cables. So imagine the equivalent of um, like the best analogy. So you, you have a 4k TV, you have a, an awesome 1440p scaler and you put the image up and it looks perfect, but then you put that on an oscilloscope and you see a little bit of a ripple. It doesn't really affect your setup, but there is a difference, uh, with or without it. That's kind of like the same thing with ferrite cores. There could be a lot of things that are changed in these detailed measurements, but might not actually make a difference in your setup. That's not a, you know, that's not a across the board blanket statement. That was just an explanation as to why sometimes you'll run into cables with them and without them, but you might not see a difference. So if that's something that's important to you, I would definitely look those up. Um, lastly, they're confused about the concept of EDID. They're using the EasyCoo HDMI 4K60 splitter that I recommended that has the EDID toggle for copying one of the connections, but also options for 4K with surround and uh, 5.1 surround or 7.1 surround. 
When they're sending in a 1080p signal from the Nintendo Switch, their 4K Samsung TV is reporting 4K input, which they're assuming is a lie because the EDID toggle, uh, or a lie from the EDID toggle section. Yeah. So here's the thing. EDID is basically, uh, it's writing a note as the signal's being passed. So the EDID signal is like, okay, this is a 4K60 signal that is not HDR compatible. Passes that note to your TV, and your TV is like, okay, this is supposed to be a 4K60 signal that... Um, and there it could be some issues with EDID spoofing when that happens. Uh, I think that's more of an issue with capture cards that I've seen than TVs, but that's generally something that most people wouldn't have to worry about. So... If you're trying to do something like get 2560 by 1440p working onto another device, you might start to see issues because if it's expecting one signal and then something completely off the, you know, off the charts comes at it, it's the display or target device gets confused um, and it might not work right. So in those situations, especially in setup like PlayStation 3, if you plug that into a splitter, it might not detect anything correctly. So when I set up my PS3 to my projector, I got to go direct into the projector. Then it scans that it's 3D compatible, all the different resolutions. And then after I save that, and then I unplug it, run it through the splitter, and I'm good to go. So that's what I would definitely suggest when you're messing around with this stuff. Um, always go direct first, add the splitter second. And if you really need to get complicated, that's when the um, HD Fury device could really become a, a tool that you would use. For me personally, and the stuff I do, it just drove me crazy. But even, even in the review that I did of it, that I explained that, a lot of people came back politely with, hey, I see your point, but I use it for this, and it's a vital device in my chain. So you know, if EDIDs are things that you need to constantly modify when you're splitting these signals and when you're doing different things, I would absolutely look into something like that where you could control exactly what's happening as opposed to a cheap $20 device that just says, hey, let's just say it's 4K60 compatible so you don't have to worry about that stuff. Uh, so just a suggestion, but, you know, you do a lot of tinkering and, and, and messing around. So always go direct first. And if you can't get past it with that, uh, with that, then you might need some kind of EDID spoofer. And I would just look into, personally, I would look into whatever the cheapest device is first to see if that's what you need, and then kind of look into the much more expensive HD Furies. Logan said, in regards to RetroNAS, do I think it would be possible to create cartridge-based interfaces for stuff like Genesis and the NES that could connect to the RetroNAS to allow you to access your game libraries on original hardware? Yes, that's something that is being worked on for platforms that could already support that. So, you know, PlayStation, GameCube, uh, there's a, a bunch right now that you could do it. There's also the Fenrir optical drive emulator that teased Wi-Fi support, and this could totally work with RetroNAS in the future, said said it's uh, still an alpha. So give it some time to, to work that out. But yes, there's absolutely a possibility for this. Uh, I emailed Crix months ago and sent him all the retro NAS info and said, hey, how about another version with a Wi-Fi chip in it? So people could decide if they want to either copy him to the SD or stream off the, the NAS or both. Um, I haven't heard back. Obviously, Crix has quite a lot of other stuff on his mind at the moment, so I, I will not be bothering him about that again. But there could possibly be ways to use the USB expansion port on a lot of EverDrives, uh, the developer's port, to do exactly that. There could be an external add-on built. Um, there were some wireless SD cards. So it's an SD card with a Wi-Fi chip in it. I don't think it's ever been done for micro SD. So that removes a lot of possibilities there. But this is absolutely doable. It just would take somebody to sit down and do it. There's not really any technical limitations. There's no hardware limitations because that uh, ESP Wi-Fi chip everybody uses is available. It's really just a matter of somebody sitting down and figuring it out, which I really hope people do because the more we start to get into these different collections and your save games, and especially when you start getting into any kind of discs as opposed to cartridges, storage becomes a problem, you know, especially if you're trying to jam an entire library on a micro SD card, it becomes an expensive problem. And having everything in one centralized thing to be managed could save a lot of people a lot of trouble. 
Now, if you only play modern consoles and you really just want uh, a Genesis with a ROM cart or an N64 with a ROM cart, no, adding a retro NAS setup would be a complete waste and a giant pain. But if you have multiple different stuff, then that's when it really becomes a help. So if you're out there and you feel like making a Wi-Fi based ROM cart, by all means, uh, you know, let us know. Uh, I'll help test in any way that I can, but I do think that's totally viable. I just think the best solution would be for somebody like Crix to take the already working and awesome existing products and just add an ESP Wi-Fi chip to it. I think the bigger issue would be on these analog consoles, making sure that doesn't add any audio interference when you're using it. But I think it's very doable. It's just going to take somebody to actually sit down and do it. Plutonio is running into the same issue that a lot of people are in that they're trying to take a computer with an Intel-based graphics card and output 15 kilohertz RGB. And that's always hit or miss. For a long time, it wasn't possible at all. And it seems like Plutonio can't quite get it to be stable. So the issue is that a lot of these devices require a certain pixel clock in order for it to work at all. So you can't take the HDMI signal and set it to 320 by 240 because that's too low of a pixel clock. But you can set it to like 1920 by 240 and CRTs don't know the difference because their horizontal resolution is all just jammed into the same uh, into the same signal. As long as the frequency and vertical refresh rates the same, everything should be fine. And while that is a totally doable solution, some Intel based graphics cards just can't handle it at all. So I would keep messing around. I would go on forums with people who have worked on this before, make sure to put your exact chipset up there to see if it would work. Um, and if other people have gotten your exact chipset working, then cool. If not, there's a few other things that you could look into. First, you mentioned converting things like you know, 480p to 480i for use on a 15 kilohertz CRT. And the only device I know that does that is the Extron Super Emotia, which is rare and very expensive. And I don't know if I would say go hunt one down just for this purpose. It might be cheaper to look into something else. One of the things you could do is just downscale to 240p and you could get GBS control and do that yourself. If, uh, if you don't mind a little bit of soldering, you could use a RetroTank 5X for that, but you're going to end up with 240p, which while that's great for video games, might not be the look that you're going for for TV and movies. You said you already tried the cheap HDMI to composite adapter. And uh, yeah, I, I'm sure you've gotten the same exact experience as most other people on that. It's just, meh. you could absolutely try different resolutions. So try sending that adapter 1080p, try 720, try 480p and see if that improves it. For TV shows and stuff like that, it might be totally fine, but I don't really know how good it would get, especially because some of them use different chips than others. Some are passable, some are totally terrible. So it's really, it's hit or miss with those adapters. The other thing that you could probably worry about doing that I've never personally done before is you could take something like if you have a Thunderbolt port on your laptop, you could take one of those cheaper ATI graphics cards that uh, I believe it's the 6000 series chipset is what people generally recommend. And then add that to an external adapter and send that through CRT MU driver or anything in order to force those modes. Now, depending on what you already own, this could either be extremely expensive or it could actually be not too terrible. So if you already own a laptop with a Thunderbolt port, um, and you know how to do that stuff, which you're already using Linux, so that shouldn't be too bad at that point. You could pick up a cheap $20 old video card that's compatible, and you could try to look for a used Thunderbolt enclosure, just get the cheapest one. You're probably looking at less than 300 bucks for that, which is expensive, but it's way cheaper than a Super Emotions go for these days, uh, which stinks, because you used to be able to get those for like 150 but, you know, inflation or whatever. So you could try that, but I've never done that before. And then you would have the issue of there's two graphics cards. You would need to make sure to tweak that software to only be using the one down the Thunderbolt port. So it could be possible, but maybe not. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a good solution for you. I would just double check your exact Intel chipset, jump on some forums and see if anybody else has been able to pull this off in your same scenario with that chipset. And if not, just try to think of any other alternatives you got. But 
if you're on a budget, that HDMI to com uh, composite adapter that you have might be just the cheapest and easiest solution for the short term. But it's an interesting one, and I hope someday we could figure out other ways to manipulate downscaling to make it easier for situations like this. Daniel Adato is looking to mod a PS2 network adapter to work with a SATA drive as opposed to the original IDE interface that's there. Unfortunately, all the adapter boards that they're finding are stamped with the name brand of a notorious clone company that is known for stealing from the retro gaming world, and they don't want to buy a product from them. Even if they are a totally open design, you don't want to fund that company to steal other things. So do I know the real designer or where to get an alternate product? Awesome question. The easy answer is I ran into this exact same solution or situation last year, and I just searched eBay and uh, or Amazon. I can't remember which, but I just searched until I found one that wasn't branded with that company. It arrived with a totally different name, and it worked fine. So that's your short-term solution. But it's an excellent question as to does anybody know the real designer or where that originated from? Because I would like to know as well. Is this an open source project that's officially on GitHub? Is this just on a forum somewhere and that company just stole it and made their own like very often happens with that company? Uh, and if it is an open source design, does the original seller still or the original creator sell it so we could support them? If not, is this something that maybe one of the good companies in retro gaming could try? Try to make a batch of. I know you're not going to compete with a clone company that makes them at 10,000 a clip or 5,000 a clip or whatever they do, but I, I think there are enough people out there like Daniel who take the time to go, oh, that's a clone company. So even if this here is legit, other stuff they do isn't, so I don't want to give them a penny. So I think there's enough people out there where if this is a legit open source design or a freeware design, whatever you want to call it, uh, I think there are people out there that would certainly like to purchase knowing that it's funding a good company that does not steal. So excellent question. If anybody knows the answer to that, please post in the comments. Um, and, and just another word, I know I've been mentioning that comments have been uh, getting deleted, ones that I would never have wanted to delete. One thing that is common is if you put a, a link, a URL, it gets held for review. And that usually just pops right up and I just approve it. So if you end up dropping a link and you don't see it appear, I probably just haven't logged in that day and just give it time. Unfortunately, though, I have very often seen every day I check that held for review bin. And I mean, every day, every time I log in to check comments, I always check that. And every month or so, I'll click on held for review and like 40 things will pop up that were not there for the previous month. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Uh, hopefully we could find some links, but thanks to anybody that could help. Oliver Clare also wanted to follow up on last week's stuff on stereoscopic 3D gaming on the PS3 and Xbox 360. They'd like to get this functionality into their setup, but they don't think that an older 3D TV is the way forward because the image for regular gaming would likely be inferior to a 4K OLED or even a modern LCD, so they wouldn't want to use it as their main display. And on the other hand, they don't have the space for multiple TVs in their gaming room. So they were thinking maybe a 3D-capable projector and a screen that could unfurl over the main TV when needed might be the answer. That's what you're looking at right back there, my friend. There is a... Hold on. Let me demo for people watching. Sorry if you're listening to audio only. Uh... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I absolutely had to do that. Um, so I think that's a great solution, but there's a few things to note. First of all, you can get yourself like an LG OLED C6 like mine, which does an amazing job with 3D stuff. However, it's a lot laggier than modern OLEDs and they don't do 120 hertz. So that's definitely something you might want to keep in mind. You could, if you're on a budget, try to hunt down an older 720p 3D projector. And I think that would be an excellent solution if you could find it cheaper. The projector I just got, I absolutely love, but it's expensive. The good news is it's new though. So it's, I think it was like 1500 bucks. I'll leave a link for it for anybody interested. And it does 3D, it's 4K HDR compatible. It also does 1080p 120, which I haven't tried yet. And when I did an experiment, um, you know, over the past month or so, I've watched a couple of movies where we started the movie on the OLED. And then when, I think, I, if, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself here, but it's worth, uh, worth hearing. But we started the 3D movie on the OLED, which happens to have passive 3D glasses, um, passive shutter, not active. 
And then we went downstairs. So the, my OLED 65, it's a 92 inch screen behind me. Uh, it's really the biggest for this room I could fit comfortably. We went downstairs and finished the movie on the projector. And everybody that I've done this experiment with, super nerds, people that couldn't possibly give a shit about this stuff, everybody said the same thing. The OLED was much, much clearer. However, the experience overall with a giant screen in 3D was what they preferred. So if they had a choice, as long as it wasn't, you know, a bright sunny day, which 3D isn't good for bright days anyway, but just saying, as long as the room brightness wasn't an issue, everybody preferred the total experience on the projector. And Cousin Scott and I are going to be doing a podcast soon where we talk about this because there's also certain TV and movie content that I prefer on a projector over everything else, including CRTs. <gasps> Gasp, I know, but... You know, I think if you have the space and desire for a projector, it's really worth getting. And if you could find a 720p 3D one cheap uh, first, please share the model because I would love to uh, to try that just for the heck of it myself. But I think that would do a great job. And yes, PlayStation 3 might be better running in 720p and having the games render in that. But I think a modern projector would get you so many other advantages to that where the scaling of the PS3 wouldn't be nearly as big of a downside as the pluses that you get. 1080p 120 is awesome. This projector is like just about a frame of lag at 4K, 4K 60, but it's 8 milliseconds at 1080p 120. So there's trade-offs. But my number one thing, as usual, is budget. Uh, if you know, get yourself a, oh, the other note that you definitely want to take into account is screen quality. And the biggest difference I've seen in screen quality for a scenario like that, where there's stuff behind it is the sides kind of curl in a little bit. And then that was a $130 screen. And I also had a smaller one, which I ended up having to upgrade and I wasted a hundred bucks, but the biggest difference, the biggest step up wasn't motorized and all that stuff. It was the better screens have this netting on the side that keeps it all straight across so that the ends don't curl in and cause that weird warping effect that you often see in CRTs, actually. So get a decent screen or get the cheapest screen. Those are, you know, that's what I did. Eventually I'll upgrade for the better ones. The better ones are actually too wide anyway, so this room might be stuck with that for a while. And on a side note, if anybody has a pretty interesting idea for trying to straighten out the sides, let me know. I had a few thoughts on that by like putting binder clips and cardboard, but I haven't been able to really work that out. So yeah, get yourself a, a screen that's either the cheapest that works or get one with the netting so it keeps it straight. And then with a projector, either get the cheapest one you could find to try it out, knowing that there's going to be, you know, obviously you get what you pay for, uh, or just get one that's fully specced and can be used for everything that you need. So I'll leave the link to my projector. Uh, I definitely like it. I think it's worth every penny. Uh, it's just really up to you. It's, it's, you know, how often are you going to use it? How important are movies to you? How important is, is messing with this? It could just be beneficial if you started out getting the cheapest possible whatever, hanging a sheet from the ceiling or something, I don't know, and just kind of seeing whatever you got, seeing for your own eyes on your own setup what you think and seeing if it's something that you could invest some money in, or if you just want to say, eh, you know what, this was fun, but not for me. Anyway, as always, thanks to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially to all of you supporters, because without you, none of the stuff that I'm involved in would be possible. So thank you all, and I'll see you next week.